0: Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to Osh's big anniversary sale celebration May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at
1: Osh.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, Welcome to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously this morning that states are free to punish presidential electors who don't support the winner of the popular vote. It also upheld almost the entirety of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which bans robocalls to cell phones. Those rulings come after the court's opinions in cases involving undocumented immigrants who arrived as children, LGBTQ workers, and abortion rights in Louisiana. More rulings are still to come, including a decision on whether President Trump is required to release his tax returns to House Democrats and a New York grand jury. Joining us to talk about the Supreme Court and the latest political news is Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School and host of the new podcast, Passing Judgment. And welcome, Professor Levinson. Welcome back to Forum.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Happy late Supreme Court season.
1: Well, same to you. And congratulations on your podcast, which I had an opportunity to listen to. And sounds good. Um, And sounds, I hope, uh, what people will be listening to to learn more about the law, which we're going to do with you this morning, I presume. Uh, Let's talk about first the ruling that electors, uh, so-called faithless electors, can't go rogue. Uh, It's a big ruling in many ways. uh, And certainly... A unanimous ruling is something we're not used to seeing from this Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Kagan wrote the uh, opinion, but the opinion is uh, in unanimity.
0: It is. I'll actually say we get unanimous opinions more than one would think. I think our last one was February 26, actually, but they tend not to be in the big cases that you and I would talk about. So when we get a unanimous opinion, It's typically more of a kind of arcane statutory interpretation case. Maybe it's about the bankruptcy code um, or a banking act. Actually, we got a unanimous decision in the Bridgegate case uh, just a few months ago, I believe. But um, I was surprised. I mean, I would love to come on and say, you know, I saw this happening. I saw the outcome and I thought it was going to be nine to zero. And I absolutely didn't. I thought this was going to be a much closer call because... What the court was weighing was on the one side of the purpose behind why we have the electoral college at all, which is really that it's supposed to save us from ourselves. It's this group of purportedly at the time elder statesmen, and they were supposed to look at the results of how the voters voted in the states and say, did they make a good decision? Are we sure that they didn't just elect a unqualified demagogue and you know should we basically exercise some free agency on the other hand you have the argument that the supreme court thought was persuasive today where you have a situation where uh under the constitution it's the states who could determine the time place and manner of elections and what the court said is part of that discretion from states is the ability to say if you want to be an elector for my state let's say you want to be an elector for california you have to vote the way californians do you can't go rogue and that's what the court said today they they ultimately picked door number two which is that these loyalty pledges that the majority of states require of electors are in fact constitutional
1: well, there have only been, I think, historically, about 10 electors who did go rogue, but it could certainly make a difference in a presidential election. And one, and it goes back to a couple of cases in uh, Colorado and uh, um, Washington state. But the fact is, I'm just wondering what your sense is about how this might affect, uh, for example, a national poly- uh, popular vote bill, which needs a certain number of more st- states to actually abolish the Electoral College.
0: Yeah, well... It- in in a way, I think it because it strengthens the electoral college, meaning it really doesn't allow for any flexibility. It could therefore strengthen the push for the national popular vote, meaning people who are dissatisfied with the electoral college will now see it as even more rigid. Forgive me, this say, is a,
1: you, this is actually <clears throat> excuse me, in your judgment, and some are saying this is a defeat. <clears throat> the advocates of changing the electoral college, then, yeah. Um, so,
0: yes, I mean, I think one of the advocates actually used this case as kind of a test balloon, but I think there's one argument to be made that because the court said electors can't be go rogue, because the court said they can't become faithless, that that actually strengthens the Electoral College and therefore strengthens the resolve of those who wish to abolish it. And, um, you know, if you look at the Electoral College... I mean, you know this and your listeners know this. It so fundamentally changes the way we hold presidential elections because we're basically just zeroing in on five to six, quote unquote, swing states, the states that can make a difference and just the swing voters in those swing states. So if we had a national popular vote, we'd be seeing a lot more of presidential candidates in California because we're the most populous state. We have so many people here. As it stands, California doesn't play that big of a role in uh, the general election because we basically know where our 55 electoral votes will go. And if electors could go rogue, my argument is that's actually when California could play a larger role if, you know, if 55 electors banded together and decided to. Uh, do something else, you could see um, chaos after the general election. But uh, that chaos is exactly what the Supreme Court today, I think, frankly, wanted to guard against.
1: In fact, uh, it was, I guess, Justice Alito who uh, wrote about the concern about chaos. Uh, We're talking with Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School, host of a new podcast called Passing Judgment. And uh, The court also upheld, uh, Professor Levinson, a federal ban on robocalls to cell phones. And Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote on behalf of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito and Thomas, said, and I'm quoting here Americans passionately disagree about many things, but they're largely united in their disdain for robocalls. Tell us about this case.
0: Yeah, so this is a case that essentially asked two different questions. So, one is, was this ban on robocalls specifically to cell phones permissible? And the court says, yes. And then there's a second question about whether or not you can have a carve out so that debt collectors can, in fact, um, use avail themselves of robocalls. And the court in that, on that question said no, because it looks like what, and forgive me for sounding too much like a law professor for a moment, it looks like a content-based restriction, by which we mean it looks like the government singling out certain speakers. So in that case, the government would be singling out debt collectors for preferential treatment. And if there's anything that the First Amendment says, it doesn't like it when the government picks basically winners and losers, who can speak and who cannot speak. So the court went through a pretty interesting analysis and said this is a speech-based restriction. And we ha- therefore, we have to look at it with the most critical eye. They use a test called strict scrutiny. And it does not survive strict scrutiny. So the court here ultimately upheld a decision by the Fourth Circuit. And really interesting to see uh, the court do something that we just talk about academically a lot, which is say, uh, government, you don't get to say we like debt collectors, we don't like other robocalls, and therefore they get special treatment.
1: Wasn't Neil Gorsuch in dissent on this uh, on the basis of the First Amendment concerns? Because it's ironic that the other Trump appointee, uh, Kavanaugh, actually wrote for the majority.
0: Yes, and of course we famously saw this, if it's okay to use the word famously, uh, just I think last week, of course during um, COVID, every week feels a little bit longer, but we saw a a Gorsuch-Kavanaugh split last week with respect to the case dealing with whether or not Um, under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, LGBTQ workers were protected from workplace discrimination. And Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, as you know, saying, yes, they are. The Civil Rights Act protects LGBTQ workers from employment-based discrimination. And Justice Kavanaugh dissented, which is just a way of flagging for your listeners that, being a conservative legal thinker doesn't always map directly onto being a conservative politician. That conservative political thought and conservative legal thought uh, aren't always uh, mere images.
1: Well, since you mentioned politicians, I'm wondering about what you think the implication of this case is for campaign ads. It was a group of political consultants who brought the challenge.
0: Yeah, so the, um, you know, I think that will it remains, well, I apologize, I'm pausing because yes, it was political consultants who brought this challenge essentially saying we don't wanna be treated differently uh, than um, debt collectors, essentially saying that they don't like, of course, the particular ban on robocalls to cell phones. But I have this feeling that political consultants really of almost any group will find another way to reach voters. And particularly if you look at how we're receiving campaign information this time around, um i think political consultants are increasingly turning towards social media and um and they will no longer have the avenue of the cell phone robocalls and neither will debt collectors
1: i'm going to uh invite you our listeners to join this conversation with professor jessica levinson of the Loyola law school what questions do you have Not only about this Supreme Court, but there are recent rulings, and we can talk about a lot of recent rulings, whatever's on your mind, really. You can give us a call right now, and I invite you to do that. Toll-free, you can join us at 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls is 866-733-6786 if you want to weigh in or if simply have a question. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions and comments you may have to forum at kqed.org. I'd like to know what your thoughts are, Professor Levinson, on the status of uh, President Trump's tax returns, because, uh, well, they're going to be presumably um, decided upon by the Supreme Court. And we've got the House Democrats, we've got the New York grand jury in this. Uh, We've got a lot that's at stake. I don't know if anybody uh, can predict what's going to happen, but what's the timeline on it?
0: So I'm going to do that incredibly stupid thing where I actually will predict an outcome here. I'll predict both the timeline and an outcome and go ahead and save the tape for when I'm disastrously wrong within a few days. But I think we're going to get a decision. Um, The the Supreme Court term will wrap up by Friday, July 10th. Um, The Supreme Court has not gone into July since 1996. And I think before that, It was the early 80s. The court, even when there's nowhere to go and there's nowhere to travel, doesn't like going into July. It just goes against their tradition. And so when it comes, so prediction number one is the court term is over by Friday. Second prediction is that we see a split decision when it comes to this issue of not just President Trump's uh, tax returns, but his financial documents on on the whole. And so what I believe we'll see is the court, ruling against Congress. So Congress and two congressional committees have asked um, President Trump's accountant for uh, certain information. They said, we're looking at foreign influence of elections. We're looking at the government ethics codes. We have to determine whether or not there is impermissible foreign influence in, in elections. We have to figure out if the government ethics codes are working with respect to the president. And so we need this information. If you listen to oral arguments, I think at least five justices were kind of skeptical of whether or not Congress had the power to do this. But-
1: Uh, I'm sorry. Excuse me, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish what you were saying.
0: But if you listen to the oral arguments with respect to the other case, whether or not the New York Grand Jury, and specifically Attorney General, uh, excuse me, District Attorney, New York District Attorney, um, Cy Vance Jr., has the power to ask, again, President Trump's accountant, and I believe bank, for other financial records. I think in that case, the court felt much more strongly that the president's argument was not correct, that sitting presidents are not immune from state investigation. And for the public, if there is that split decision, what it means is that we will not see the financials before the election, because If Congress gets it, the financial documents probably become public. If the state grand jury gets it, state grand juries operate in secret, so very unlikely we would get that information before the election.
1: Well, now that you're mentioning the election and going out on a limb and making uh, predictions, (laughs) I'm going to ask you about. Oh no! Well, no, because uh, I, I did listen to one of your podcasts. It was an interview you did actually with Michael Genovese on the Trump presidency and prospects for his being reelected uh tim worth as you may know uh colorado politician did an article recently that appeared in newsweek and he's gotten a good deal of publicity for this it's gone out on social media and essentially what he's saying is uh the president uh, can essentially evoke executive powers, uh, call it an emergency right. w- if there's an election, and not leave and have Bill Barr in the Justice Department, who's been backing him on just about everything, behind him. I don't want to you know, uh, create a- any kind of scare here, but that's a real possibility, is a viable one, according to Tim Worth, and he lays it out.
0: I thought it was a, a legal option. So as you said, this was an um, article that got a lot of buzz, which, all, um, I hope not incorrectly paraphrase it to mean that the president can use, as you said, emergency powers essentially declare a national emergency uh, to the point where the election is um, kicked to the House of Representatives to decide. And that um, the House, well, that the president by use of these emergency powers and by use of delaying the ability of states to actually have the election could legally stay in power. And um, And forgive me, me, the
1: House of Representatives in many people's minds raises the notion that because it has a Democratic majority, it would not allow for that. But that's not the way this unfolds, according to Tim Worth.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's not the way this unfolds because of how the members of the House of Representatives would be counted in a um, In a vote in which they decide the presidential election. So it's not just that every person gets a vote It's not just that you add up how many Democrats there are and how many Republicans there are. Thank you That was a very important clarification And so, you know, people have long worried about well will President Trump simply just say I'm not supporting the Decision of the Electoral College. We just talked about the Electoral College and that's of course a fear but then there's this new fear which I think is actually uh, potentially quite well-founded because we've seen President Trump use his executive authority and his emergency powers in places where um, other presidents have not felt comfortable. So think about, for instance, I'm declaring a national emergency because we need funding for a border wall. Uh, Think about President Trump's use of executive orders for the so-called travel ban. Um, think about Attorney General Barr's very consistent support of presidential positions that I think really break every norm that we've previously adhered to. So, uh, yes, I don't know that it's a distinct possibility, but the article lays out a a legal path for President Trump to stay in power.
1: And the president also has made very leading statements about voter fraud. And this will be the most fraudulent vote of all time. And there was even his uh, questioning uh, voter fraud in the election that he won in 2016, talking about uh, what he called illegals going up to New Hampshire and voting against him. Uh, If you'd like to join us with Jessica Levinson, we do welcome your involvement in the program. If you have questions about recent Supreme Court rulings or what we're talking about here, which is really quite serious, uh, this Issue that Tim Worth has raised and that others have raised about uh, what may be seen at least as a potential scenario of emergency and executive powers used to retain the presidency, despite the fact that the president may lose the election. Uh, if you'd like to join us, you can give us a call again right now. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Here's Tom who asks about Trump's tax returns. Why doesn't Congress simply direct the IRS to provide Trump's returns? I I guess, well, they're still uh, undergoing uh, an audit uh, perhaps, but I don't know if you have some thoughts on this, Jessica Levinson. Uh,
0: Yes, I do. So that's just not the mechanism for how you would uh, release tax returns or obtain tax returns. One thing I just wanna point out is we're talking about more than tax returns. We're talking about, in both cases, Uh, and I apologize for the sudden background noise, Uh, we're talking in both cases about uh, Trump's financial records. And so um, there is a fairly arcane federal statute that essentially allows Congress to obtain the tax returns of any individual, but that is a different statute that's at issue in this case and that would allow likely just the leader of that congressional committee To see the tax returns. So it's not quite the route where Congress just says IRS hand this over and then the IRS can hand this over. One point of clarification, of course, is that President Trump has said, uh, I'll turn over my uh, tax returns when the audit's over. There's absolutely nothing to prevent any individual, including the President of the United States, from turning over tax returns while undergoing an audit. Those two things really have nothing
1: to do with each other. Mutually exclusive. Uh, Let's get a caller on here and let's begin with Peter. Peter, you're on the air with us. Welcome. Join us. Yes. Hi. Um, My understanding with respect to electors was that in a time before telephones, computers, uh, telegrams, and so on, the concept was that uh, they met in order to gather and actually make the vote that had been taken, but also that they were given some discretion. For example, what happens in the months that have gone by since the election if somebody who was running died or went into a serious coma? Wouldn't wouldn't then they necessarily actually have some kind of discretion, and shouldn't they? Jessica Levinson. Yeah, so this
0: is the tension that Uh, the supreme court was thinking about which is this question of whether or not electors should have any agency whether or not electors should be able to have any free will and the supreme court interestingly actually came at the same question from two different perspectives the first is they asked do the states have the power to implement these loyalty oaths and have penalties that go along with it And then the second is they ask the same question kind of the reverse way, which is, do these electors have uh, the First Amendment right, the individual right to make their own decision? And the court, of course, today said, no, that based on, and it's always dicey to look at practice, but based on practice uh, for not just decades, but for centuries, that we understand that states can set the requirement for these electors. They can say the electors have to, for instance, have a residency requirement, live in the state. They could say that the electors have to have an age requirement. Um, And so they can also say the electors have to have a loyalty requirement. You know, With respect to um, whether or not when somebody dies, that would be a different question than uh, when the electors would have to adhere to the vote at this point of, what the states decided. And um, and so yes, I do think that you can make an argument that the founding fathers expected some agency, but today the Supreme Court said no.
1: Well, let's talk if we could, since we've been sort of hovering around questions related to the November election about a couple of Supreme Court decisions that recently went down in terms of voting rights. I'm talking about the one that had to do with an Alabama lower court and another one that had to do with a Texas lower court. What do you see as the impact of this, uh, not favorable necessarily for voting rights?
0: No, I mean, you're referencing, I think a, an order that came out, uh, last week with respect to a decision in Alabama, where a federal district judge essentially tried to loosen restrictions on vote by mail, where there was a federal district judge in Alabama who tried to implement, um, a situation where I believe it was that voters could engage in kind of curbside drop-off of vote by mail ballots. That's it.
1: Yeah.
0: It, and, uh, the Supreme court, and again, this wasn't a full opinion. It was just an order, uh, essentially said, no, don't, don't ease the restrictions. And for a lot of people, this echoed what happened with respect to the U S Supreme court and the Wisconsin, um, election where they also, um, where the practical implication of the ruling again was, no, I will not make it easier for you to vote by mail during a global pandemic. In that case, the question was, I believe whether or not Wisconsin could change the rules so that uh, you only had to have vote by mail ballots postmarked by a certain day as opposed to received by a certain day. And if we take anything away from that, Uh, I think it's that this is a court that if anything is more conservative than the court that in 20, um, I believe it was 2013 struck down half of the Voting Rights Act in a case called Shelby County, that this is a court that is not going to um, protect, quote unquote, take it as his job to protect the voters, that this is a court who will look very formalistically at past precedent, who's extremely, this is a court that's extremely motivated to stay out of uh, electoral contests, and that we should not look to the Supreme Court as a savior for our vote by mail rights. And if I may, you brought up this issue of voter fraud. Uh, If there's one thing that voters take away, I hope that they take away that voter fraud is extremely rare, extremely rare. Does it happen? Yes. When it happens, is it more likely to happen in the vote by mail situation? Yes, but the big fear is that people will be chilled into not taking part of the process. The big fear here is that uh, frankly, what we're seeing will come to fruition where we have this enormous drop off in the number of people who are registering to vote, which uh, coincided pretty uh, uh, almost exactly with President Trump starting to talk more about how the vote by mail system, which he of course uses, is a system that has systemic fraud, which is simply not true.
1: And just to echo what you said, the New Hampshire investigation I alluded to before about voter fraud came up really with nothing. Uh, Is there going to be a full report made available before the 2020 election in terms of uh, getting to see the Mueller report? That's also in the court's corner now.
0: Yes. Yes. So um, this is an issue of whether or not um, Congress will, I believe Congress will be able to see the secret grand jury Uh, documents that um, Mueller used as part of his report and other documents that never became public that were part of the Mueller report. And I think that that is actually on the Supreme Court's docket for next term, which means there's almost zero chance, or I would say there's 0.0001% chance uh, that we will get a decision in that before the election.
1: And we're getting a number of questions about the last election, the 2016 election. Here's David, for example, who says, Would Hillary Clinton have won if the Electoral College decision had been in effect during the last presidential election? Uh,
0: No. So this really didn't change much because uh, electors do not go rogue very often. So uh, forgive me if I wasn't clear about this in the beginning, but-
1: I said there have only been 10 cases that we know. Yes.
0: Yes. So it would not have changed the outcome. Um, Hillary Clinton- could have won the Electoral College if a number of different electors did decide to break their oaths, which the Supreme Court now said you can be punished for doing that, and go rogue and swing the election. But it would not have changed the outcome of the 2016 election. Um, As we know, of course, I'm sure people are asking about this because the national popular vote was uh, winner, Hillary Clinton, was different from the winner of the Electoral College, President Trump.
1: Well, we've only had two instances uh gore versus uh bush versus gore bush v gore and also the recent election in 2016 where the balance was really that tight but it could be again in the next election it's possible right
0: absolutely i think that if president trump here i go with another um really shaky prediction more tea leaves (laughs) yes um i'm actually of course speaking to you from west la while i drink um matcha so matcha leaves here we go Um, I do not think that President Trump at this point would win the national popular vote, but I think there's a decent chance he could win the Electoral College.
1: We'll leave it at that. And so good to have you back with us. Thank you for joining us. Always pleasure. Thank you. What a treat. Jessica Levinson and uh, her new podcast is called Passing Judgment. She's professor of law at Loyola Law School. And we have another hour of forum up ahead, so stay tuned for that. Uh, We're going to talk about the status of immigrants, not only Mm -hmm. Immigrants who are here legally, but undocumented immigrants, much to talk about, much to unpack. That's next. I'm Michael Krasny.